the church talks about pastors and teachers, the church is really a university. You come here really to learn, Amen. to learn the word and learn how to apply the word. So I don't just pass these out so you can follow along with me during the service, but for you to take them with you so you can study them as if you're studying for an exam. And the truth is, if you learn the word, study for the exam of life and pass an exam, you'll be well on your way to the victorious overcoming life. Now, I love the song that they just sang, and I always make this comment, I think, every time you sing it. It's from the 27th, 7th, 27th Psalm, one of my favorite psalms. And I recommend that you read the entire psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? Shall I fear? No one, no one, no one. But the other statement that comes from this psalm, which I always comment, I always comment on, is that I would have fainted or lost heart if I didn't believe that I would see the blessings of the Lord in the land of the living. In other words, right here where we need the blessings, not on the other side by and by. So I recommend that you read because it's in the, the, that wording is in the psalm. So that could be your extra reading for today or sometime this week, 27th Psalm. Everybody has a copy? All right. Let's go to the Father once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege and opportunity to gather around your life-giving word. We give thanks to you always because it is you who gives to us life, breath, and all things that pertain to life and godliness. We thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a guide to our path. And we thank you that the knowledge of your word is indeed a guide to achieving that victorious overcoming life. And we thank you for the exploration and illumination of that word today. And Father, as always, we thank you for Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who died on Calvary for our salvation so that we might have the right to eternal life. Today is communion. And we celebrate his victory of over 2,000 years ago, which gives us the victory today. And as Elder Iva just said, because of his shed blood, we know that whatever he died for, we were delivered from. We don't have to bear the sicknesses and the illnesses. We don't have to bear poverty. We don't have to bear disappointment. He took all of that on himself. We were delivered from that. So we give thanks to you, Father, that it is by Christ Jesus that we have right standing with you today. Holy Spirit, again, have your way and do what you do best. Guide, direct, lead us into all truth. And right now, Holy Spirit, I ask you, I invite you to think through my mind and speak through my voice as I continue, as we continue, the exploration of the Father's word today. And we declare right now, again, that our hearts and minds are alert, open, and receptive to an inflow of light and illumination that gives clarity to our vision and direction to our step. And we agree in advance that we will be doers of the word and not hearers only. Satan, again, we bind you and render you null and void, and you have no power to interfere with anyone in this service today from receiving their spiritual needs met. And finally, Father, we thank you that no one will leave here today 
with those spiritual needs unmet. And for all that will be accomplished by your word and by your spirit, we agree in advance to give you and you alone all the glory, praise, and thanksgiving. And it is in that name that is above every name we pray, Jesus the Christ. Amen. All right. You can sing along with me in, in the message. Okay, we are continuing our discussion of the power of positive confession, which is based on the book by Apostle Price by the same name. Now, as I have stated before, in his book, Apostle Price tells us many things, but one of the things he tells us is that God wants us to confess four principles. And these principles really define who we are as a people who we are as believers. And again, these four principles that we are to confess are what we are in Christ. We've been discussing that one. Where we are in Christ, what we possess in Christ, what we can do in Christ. Now we're gonna complete the first one today, what we are in Christ. We've already been discussing this for some time. But taking these four principles that are set forth in the Bible, we can readily see a connection to the excellent message Elder Nate has taught us for the past two weeks on being God's best. I certainly could see the connection. In giving us the four principles and what they mean in substance to us, God has given us his best in and through Christ Jesus. When we confess these four facts and live our life according to them, we are showing forth God's best and are being God's best as Elder Nate describes, you have to know, of course, that God has already equipped you with the best. He's already given you the best. And this is shown in his word. And guess what? All creation is waiting for you and waiting for all of us to give expression to this best, this best of God. Because we already have it. We just have to open out a way in which the imprisoned splendor may escape, as Browning says, so it can shine forth. So how do we go about giving expression to these four principles in our life and our circumstances that do reflect God's best? And we can do so by understanding and by following this simple formula or equation, K and F, that's K and F together, plus A equals S, knowledge and faith plus application equals success. Now, for ease of understanding, and you know I've done this throughout my teaching, and as a clear guide to achieving results, I like to reduce the concepts and principles of God to equations when this is possible, because it's easy to remember. Now, as you can see, in the equation that uh, you have before you, K means knowledge, F means faith, a means application, and S represents success. Now for you to benefit from all of the best things God has provided for you, and he only provides the best in Christ and then through Christ, you first have to have knowledge of these things. This knowledge is contained in the word of God. That is why I am teaching on these blessings that we believers are, we have in Christ. But knowledge is vital 
because you cannot have faith in and for the things of God without, without knowing what these things are. And these things are set forth in his word in the Bible. There can be no faith without knowledge. Let me repeat that again. There can be no faith without knowledge. Apostle Price has always told us that after salvation, faith is the most important thing for the believer. Let me just indicate to the back there that they're not running a clock, so I guess I can just talk forever. It's the most important, or maybe you're doing it deliberately, I don't know. Faith is the most important thing for the believer after salvation. It's, it's to develop your faith. Now, faith and knowledge are linked together because of the simple fact that there can be, as I've already said, there can be no faith without knowledge. That is knowledge of God's word. In fact, a believer accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior when faith for being saved is imparted in him by the Holy Spirit after the believer hears the good news about salvation. In other words, after the believer, the to-be believer, hears about salvation, develops knowledge about salvation. Now, this knowledge about salvation can come from being taught in a church meeting such as CCC that we are gathered in this morning or from an individual. An individual believer can lead you to salvation. Elder Nate emphasized the importance of the believer, that's us, sharing the good news of salvation and the good news of God's gifts and promises to us with others. Sharing the gospel, which is the good news, is what we call discipleship. And every believer, every believer is a disciple of Christ. Now, to be absolutely clear about faith and knowledge of the word as a unit, faith and knowledge of the word as a unit, let's, re let's review again this intersection of these two forces. Knowledge of God's word comes first. Jesus reminds us of the importance of the word in Matthew chapter 4, verses 4. That's Matthew chapter 4, verses 4, where he says this, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The where it is written that Jesus makes reference to is in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 3 which states this. So he, the he being God, humbled you, he's talking about the Israelites who fled Egypt into the wilderness, humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he, again he being God, might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that is why we teach this word, to help you know it, learn it, so you can apply it. Now, this word from Deuteronomy, of course, is describing Israel's plight. It's the plight of the Israelites in the wilderness after Moses led them out of captivity from Egypt. The every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is the word contained in the Bible that you have in your hand or you have it on your device or gadget. That's the every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16, which tells us this, all scripture 
all scripture is given by inspiration of God that is telling us that all scripture is the inspired word of God written by the different writers in the Bible, but inspired by God. Now, Jesus reminds us that man lives by these words, by God's words, by these scriptures in the Bible. Now, in some similar sounding language, we are told in Habakkuk, it's Habakkuk 2, verses 3, and you're familiar with this. And aren't you glad you don't have to find it? Habakkuk 2. Chapter 2, verse 3, which says this, but the just shall live by faith. And this is repeated by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.17, where he tells us, for in it, the it is the gospel of Christ, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, meaning back there in Deuteronomy, the just shall live by, or in Habakkuk, I should say, the just shall live by faith. And the just are who? They are us believers who have been justified or declared righteous in God's sight by Christ Jesus. We are declared righteous and we are the just in the sight of God, which means that when God sees us, he no longer sees us as a sinner or someone outside of his family, but he sees us as if he's looking at Jesus. That's what it means to be justified and declared righteous. So we are the righteousness of God. So we see here that we live by the word of God and we also live by faith. And that faith, of course, is in the word. Now, this will be interesting for some of you where word and faith are interchangeable. This is an important observation. Word and faith intersect here and they are actually interchangeable. And I will show you how. When we say that the just shall live by faith, what we actually mean is that the just shall live by faith in the word of God. Let me ask you this. When you say you have faith, what what are you saying? It, It has to be faith in something. In other words, faith is not something that 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 exists in isolation apart from having faith in something. So the just shall live by faith. We can also say the just shall live by faith in the word of God. And we could say that the just shall live by the word. Now, how do we get faith? We know this from Romans 10, 17, which says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is what I mean when I say that there can be no faith without knowledge of the word, because this knowledge that leads to faith comes only by hearing the word of God. You have to hear the word in order to develop faith in it. Now, for example, you develop faith for healing when you hear the word on healing. You develop faith for prosperity and giving when you hear the word taught on God's plan for prosperity for his people. His people are us. You develop faith for the blessing of Abraham in your life the material blessing of Abraham in your life when you are taught, as I've been teaching, that Jesus has delivered us from the curse of the law so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. Again, Gentiles, that's us. You develop faith in the power of the greater one that dwells in you when you are taught that greater is he that is in you than he 
that is in the world. And I don't have the scripture there, but you all know that that's found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. If you want to write it down, that's 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Greater is he. You also develop faith in the power of your mouth, of your tongue, when you are taught that death and life are in the power of the tongue. When you really understand that, then you become more careful about what you say. Again, that is why we teach the word here at Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, as part of the teaching ministry of Apostle Frederick Casey Price. The word is indispensable to the development of faith and both, that's both the faith and the word, are essential to living the victorious overcoming life. Now, continuing the discussion on interchangeability, even in the definition of faith, we can exchange faith with the word, the word. Look at Hebrews 11.1, 1, which says, now faith is, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We can also say, now the word is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For example, when facing an illness that is painful and very visible, very evident, this is how the word works just as faith does. The word is the substance of what is hoped for. What is hoped for? Our healing and the evidence of that healing that is not yet seen, not yet manifested. The word is both substance and evidence because it is a word that tells us that we are healed and that we were healed, both past and present tense. And you see where those are found in Isaiah 53, 5 and 1 Peter 2, 24. We stand in faith on this word. See, when we say we have faith for our healing, we have faith in the word that declares that we are healed. We stand in faith on this word, whether or not we see or feel the healing in this particular moment. Those who came up to the healing line this morning, they have faith in their healing, whether they feel that healing in their body at the time hands are laid on them or not. They know to keep the switch of faith on, that that healing is there. So, whether we feel or see the healing in the particular moment, we continue to stand on the word in faith until the healing physically manifests itself. Now, you can see the interchangeability of word and faith in the familiar scripture in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, which says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Here, we can also say that we walk by the word and not by sight. We walk by what the word says about us and our situation, not by what the situation looks like or appears to be. We walk by what the word says the situation is. The word says we are healed. The world says that my God shall supply every need of mine according to his riches in Christ uh, uh, Jesus. So we know that right now, if we only have five bucks in, in, in our pocket, we know that our need shall be supplied. Now, uh, So we walk again by what the word says about the situation and not what it looks like. You can also make this change uh, in the familiar Hebrews 11.6 that says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him, him being God. Again, we can say without the word, it is impossible to please God. Without knowing and feeding back his word to him, it's impossible to please God. Without knowledge of his word and the application of this word 
to our life and circumstances, it is impossible to please God. How do we please God? We please God by knowing his word, believing his word, confessing his word. And then what does he do after we do those three things? He confirms that word in our life. Thus, faith and knowledge are a clear unit. So don't get hung up on this. This is just a little sidebar for you to consider. Now, application is doing the word. This takes us to the A in the equation, K and F plus A. A is the application and K and F plus A equals S. In the formula, A stands for application. Knowledge and faith are essential elements to receiving and applying God's word. But as Ellen Nate reminded us, it is not enough to know the word of God. You must apply the word to your life and circumstances to get the benefits contained in the word and then share this good news with others. In other words, I actually know people and I have a couple of relatives who can actually cite pretty much the whole Bible. Having the word memorized and being able to stand up and recite it, it means nothing if you don't apply it to your life. It means nothing. And how do we know a person? By their fruit. We should know them. In other words, if you're applying the word, that word produces fruit in your life, good fruit, we'll know that person by the fruit that the fruit the person bears. So the application is the action component that you add to your faith and knowledge. Application shows you that you are hearing and doing the word within the meaning of James chapter 1 verses 21-22. Very familiar scripture. Uh, James chapter 1 verse 21 says this, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive with meekness the implanted word. That's the implanted word that's implanted in you after you hear it. And 2.22 says, but be doers of the word that's implanted in you and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now the deception comes when you believe or assume that you know the word in a given area because you have heard it and you've heard the word on this particular subject. But real knowing comes when you actually apply or live the word that you have heard. With knowledge and faith plus application, you will be well on your way to success. Uh, it, it, let me go back and repeat what I just said. You don't know the word when you simply hear it. I hear people say sometimes, sometimes they might even mother under, under the breath when we're teaching something, they say, well, we know this already. We've heard this. Apostle Price has taught this for 40 years. We, you know, well, as Apostle Price says, it's evident that a good many don't know it because a good many are in the same position as they were when I started teaching it 45 years ago. So obviously, you don't know it. To know it is to apply it. That's the difference. That's the difference. So real knowing, com real knowing comes when you actually apply or live this word that you have heard. With knowledge and faith plus application, you will be well on your way to success. Now, as you review the early, earlier lessons that I taught on this subject, and you continue to follow this series because it's not over yet, you will see that I will give you examples of application. 
and at times examples of actual confessions that you can make personally based on these conditions and realities that we have in Christ that we have declared in the word. Now, application again means taking action on the word that you hear. So let me say a little bit more about application. When you take steps to apply the word to your life, you are taking action on the knowledge and faith you have developed. Again, taking action is being a doer of the word. When you raise your hand in response to one of the invitations given by the minister at the end of the service, you are taking action and you're doing the word. For example, if you respond to the invitation on salvation, you're taking action in applying Romans, uh, Romans 10 uh, verses 9 and 10, our salvation scriptures. If you respond to the invitation to become filled with the Holy Spirit, you're obeying the command in the word that says be filled. If you respond to the call for church membership, you're acting on the word that says forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. Now, when you choose to really study the Bible, you are applying the word that tells us to study and show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of God, rightly understanding the word of God. And where the word says this, blessed, and that's really the very first psalm, by the way. You can put that down if you don't know where, that's, where that is. Psalm 1 says, blessed is a man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the word of the Lord. And his law, his word, he meditates day and night. When you stand in a given situation and refuse to be fearful, you are actually applying the word that says, fear not. And we see this in several points in, in the Bible. Because that's what the scripture tells us. And the scripture also tells us, the word also tells us that you have not been given the spirit of fear with the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. And when you act in love towards one another, you are, you are obeying the 11th commandment of Jesus that says we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And you are also applying the scripture that tells us to imitate God and walk in love. So in reading and studying the Bible, you should always be on the lookout for scriptures that give commands, make promises, provide gifts, offer warnings, or give exhortations, which are encouragements, which you can apply to your life. That's promises, commands, gifts, warnings, exhortations. You should look for those. If Jesus or one of the other apostles is describing a situation, ask yourself, is this describing me? Is this situation describing something I'm facing? Or the other question you can ask is, how can I apply this to my life? Now, a pastor was giving the same advice I just outlined uh, to you about applying the word uh, and, and obeying the commands and so forth uh, to his church congregation. And he asked a question. Now, what do you do uh, with the commands? What he's saying is, what do you do when you find the commands? A little old lady raised her hand and said, I underline them in blue. The pastor went on to say, underlining the Bible's commands in blue might make for a colorful Bible. But the point of the commands is that we obey them. Unfortunately, 
And this is so true. There are many people in evangelical churches who have their heads filled with information from the Bible, but they don't obey the Bible commands. And this is so true. So, again, when you obey a command of God, accept his gifts, claim his promises, heed his warnings and rejoice in his exhortations, you are obeying and doing uh, the word. And you are acting to apply the word that you hear in your life. Let me repeat that again. When you obey a command and you know when it's a command because the commands are, are very clear. And you also know that God uh, and I'll repeat this maybe even on the next page. You know that God gives commands. He doesn't make suggestions. So when he gives a command, it means it's something that you should do. It's not he's not saying it might be a good idea if you do this. So, forth. so when you obey a command of God, accept his gifts, claim his promises, heed his warnings and rejoice in his exhortations that are designed to encourage you. You are obeying and doing the word and you are acting to apply the word that you hear to your life. Now, if you are not making this application, then all you are doing is accumulating information or you may be simply underlining your Bible with mixed colors to no avail. When asked a question, now I don't want anybody to get embarrassed because I know we study the Bible and, and you open anybody's Bible here, it may be marked up in not just blue, but yellow and orange and every color. This is, this is not a put down. What is saying that you've got to do more than underline them or highlight them. You've got to do them, so forth. When asked the question, what do you do with these scriptural guides that you find, the commands, the gifts, the promises, the warnings, and so forth, your response, your response should be, I examine my life to see if and where I might apply this word to my life and to my circumstances. When you take the knowledge and faith you have developed and move to apply it to your life, you are well on your way to S. And S is a success in the formula. S means accomplishment. It means reaching your objective, reaching your desired goal. That's success. Now, we're going to return to the teaching that I have been doing on what we are in Christ. And we're coming close to the end of that first principle that we are to confess. And we're going to look at from the curse to the blessing. And we've already discussed this in, in part in previous lessons. In our last discussion on what we are in Christ, we were looking at the blessing of Abraham. I pointed out how Jesus was the facilitator in making it possible for us today to receive the promise of the spirit that was made to Abraham in the book of Genesis. That promise was that he would be, well, let's put it this, let me make it simple. That in, in you, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's the promise. You can, you can boil it down to that. Again, we're told this, the fact that we are redeemed from the curse and have the blessings of Abraham. We're told this in, in, in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. That's Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Verse 13 says this, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentile, again the Gentiles, that's us, in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit 
through faith. Now, I talked about the curse in part 12 and took us there to Deuteronomy 28, where the curse and the blessing are set forth in detail. Chapter 28. By way of additional background, the law includes the Ten Commandments, the hundreds of different laws in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, also referred to as the Book of Moses, and the hundreds of additional laws we find throughout the Old Testament, especially in those first uh, books of the Bible. Now, in fact, Talmudic scholars tell us that there are some 663 different laws recorded in what we call the Old Testament, 663. They actually say that there are 661. They take the first two from the Ten Commandments. These are the scholars. Take the first two from the, uh, from the Ten Commandments because they say those are the two that came from God. They don't necessarily add all of the ten. But in any, in any event, you're looking at uh, uh, better than 650 different laws recorded in the Bible. Now, you will see that these laws covered every aspect of private and religious life. And I went back and went through the scriptures and I looked at them. It is amazing. It's interesting reading. It covered everything. What to do when you stub your toe. What to do when you go to wash your face. What to do when you take the animals out to feed. It, it, it covers everything. These laws included rules for religious observance. And they are detailed. And you're familiar with some of the marital laws. Dietary laws, laws for caring for animals, laws on how to farm and till the land. In fact, they have some very good rules on how to protect the environment and the land, how to till and how to plow the land. It's in the Bible. And you'll see some of the conservationists will cite you passages in the Bible uh, where they tell you how to till the, uh, the land and rotate the crops and so forth and so on. This is actually goes back to the Bible. Uh, they had a law on everything that you could think of. And that was the problem. The problem with the law was that it was not humanly possible for anyone to keep every one of these laws. If you broke one law, you were guilty of breaking the law. And I was talking with uh, Nadine about this the other day. And, and then a couple of other people made comments. So I said, I, I, maybe I need to elaborate on this a little bit more. So that's why I'm elaborating a little bit more on the curse this morning. If you broke one of the laws, you were guilty of breaking the law and therefore stood condemned, so you were cursed with the law. But now this is what you may not understand. The bat, look at the last sentence at the bottom of the page. Now the law itself was not the curse. The law was not the curse. The law existed to govern human conduct and set in place rules and regulations to govern, govern every possible situation in life. In its origin, the intent of the law was good, it was designed to foster good conduct. For the religious leaders, it was a way of controlling the people and keeping them in line. Now, on the subject of the law and faith, on the law and faith, Apostle Paul writes this in Galatians 3, 23, 24. Galatians 3, uh, verses, that's chapter 3 and then verses 23 and 24. And you have it before you there. 23, but before faith came, we are kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. 24, therefore the law was our tutor, in other words, our teacher, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. 25, but after faith has come, 
we are no longer under a tutor. In other words, we're no longer under the law. 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 27, for as many of you as, for as many as, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave or free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And Ellen A. gave us that scripture in his teaching as well. 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Thus, before faith came, the curse operated against those who broke the law. And this curse manifested itself in, I say, four ways. And I'm going to explain this to you. We talk about the curse of poverty, sickness, and fear of death. It actually redeemed us from spiritual death. That was the first thing that Jesus did. And that's one of the first things that salvation accomplishes for us. It removes us from spiritual death, which came into play when Adam disobeyed uh, God in the Bible. When he did that, we were separated from God. We became spiritually dead, meaning we were separated from God. And, and then that separation became a curse, part, part of the curse. So Christ has redeemed us from the curse uh, of poverty, sickness, that spiritual death, and also fear of natural death. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He became a curse for us. Christ became a curse by taking on himself at Calvary every aspect of the curse. In and on his body, Christ took on every sickness, every illness. He took on poverty and he took on spiritual death, which I just talked about, which is separation from God result, resulting from Adam's original sin. But Christ also delivered us from the curse of the fear of death, which mankind had harbored since the time of disobedience in the garden by Adam. Look at Hebrews 2.14, or Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 16, which says this. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 16, for those who are following us on one of the devices. Hebrews 2.14 says this. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 16, for indeed he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Again, that's us. I'm going to always put where it's referring to us so you'll know that. We are the seed of Abraham. Therefore, we can say this about what we are in Christ, our topic. We are redeemed from the curse of the law and we are, we are, we are the blessed of Abraham. Now, I spoke earlier of the material and financial blessings we have in Christ that come by way of the blessing of Abraham. Again, we see an outline of the blessing of Abraham in Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, verses 3 to 6, 8, 9, and 11. And you can look those up on your own. Go back and review pages 8 through 11 of part 12 of this series, and you'll see a further discussion of this blessing of Abraham. But as part of the blessing, we have come 
into the inheritance which God swore he would give us. We're in the land which he has provided for us in Christ Jesus. Now those words should sound familiar to you. Why are they familiar to you? Because we say them every Sunday. That's part of our confession of faith. We have come into the inheritance which God swore he would give us. And we are in the land which he has provided for us in Christ Jesus. And as Apostle Price points out in his book, The Power of Positive Confession, the land the Lord has given us is the kingdom of God. When we were born again, Apostle Price writes this. We still live in the world. We are physical creatures, but we are not limited to and should not be limited by the world systems by the world systems that, that regulate who's poor, who's rich, who has, who does not have, and so on. Look again where Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 12 says this. Deuteronomy 28, 12 says this. The Lord will open to you his good treasure. This is for everybody who obeys his word. Open to you his good treasure, the heaven, to give you the rain to your land, and in its season, and to bless all the work of your hand. To bless all the work of your hand. What he's saying here is that he will bless everything that we set our hands to. Everything that we set our hands to. Now, how can the Lord open up to you his good treasure? Apostle Price reminds us that's simple because he has no bad treasure. Only good comes from God because God is all good. One of God's truths is that everything produces after its own kind. Evil comes from below from Satan because he's evil. So know that God's treasure from heaven above is not only good, it is perfect. This truth is, is, this truth is confirmed in James chapter 1, verses 17. James chapter 1, verses 17, which tells us this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, it's God, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. All good and perfect gifts come from above, from God. Now, as Ellen Nate said in his message, we're given God's best so that we can be God's best. But to receive God's gifts of the best and to be God's best, we have to diligently obey the voice, the word of the Lord. We're reminded of this in Deuteronomy 28, 13, which says this, and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not beneath. If you heed the commandments of the Lord, that's his word, the Lord your God, which I command you today, and you are careful to observe them, that's when you will be the head and not the tail and above and not below. When we obey God's word, we are always on top and we are always ahead and not the tail the tail that is wagged by Satan. If we obey God's word and we do his word, in Deuteronomy 28, 12, which I cited on the previous page, we are told that God will bless all the work of your hand. This means that the job or business that I set my hands to will be blessed, or that project or special undertaking I embark on will be blessed or my classwork in school or college that I study and prepare for will be blessed. And you can go on and add to the list because it says what you set your hands to. And where Christian believers fall short is that they don't set their hands to anything. They sit with folded hands expecting God to produce something. 
and God is waiting for you to move so he can move. So you can add all kinds of things to this list, things that you set your hands to. Now, if you're doing God's word, Apostle Price has this confession for you to make if you're doing God's word. And this confession is written by Apostle Price. All, and this is for you to confess, you say all the work of my hand is prospering and will continue to prosper because I have diligently obeyed the voice of the Lord and I have observed to do all of his commandments. In other words, if you obey the word of God, you can expect that he will bless whatever you set your hand to. And that could be an assignment here at church. It could be uh, any undertaking. It could be setting out as president of the PTA or in your community organization where you are either just a member or you an officer. What you set your hand to, you can expect to be blessed. Now, again, as I said earlier, commandments in the word of God mean the same thing. God's words are commands. They are never suggestions. Obey the commands, the words, and live and move to the abundant life that Jesus speaks of in John 10.10, where he says, the thief comes, but to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that you, meaning us, may have life and have it more abundantly. Or as Ellen Nate likes to add, to the full and overflowing. <laughs> Which I think is the amplified version. Absolutely. So what we are in Christ, or what are we in Christ? We are blessed. Finally, in terms of what we are, and this will conclude this section of the four principles, what we are in Christ, you are an heir of God. And this is a good one to end on because this says it all. Now, one of the last and most important things in terms of, of, of what we are in Christ is seen in our divine sonship. We look to Galatians 4, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, which tells us the following. It describes our divine sonship. I'm calling it our divine sonship. Uh, Galatians 4 chapter 6 says this and because you are sons God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying out Abba Father 7 therefore you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir of God through Christ with this and I have to remind you of this it is important to remember how you become a son through Christ you are only a son of God if you have personally and individually, by an act of your will, accepted and confessed Jesus as the Lord of your life, you have it written down there. That's how you become a son. At this point, after you make this confession, you become a blessed son and heir of God. Being an heir of God is a final scriptural declaration of what we are in Christ that we will consider in this series section on what we are in Christ. And on this very important point of being an heir, Apostle Price writes this. How much does God have? Everything. Well, you are an heir of God through Christ. So you should have everything you need and then some. You should have more than you need so you can share. Stop belittling yourself. 
Stop listening to the lies of the enemy through the system telling you how inferior you are, how homely you are, how ugly you are, how pretty you are, how handsome you are. You do not need man to tell you who you are. Let God tell you who you are. And on that note, we will conclude this section. We'll pick it up next time.